music appreciation. What up? It is Scoobert Dubert here. Now I'm going to be talking about mixing again. So I've been doing a ton of mixing lately, both for myself, for some other artists. We just had Garvey on last time. I'm mixing his stuff, mixing a bunch of other people's stuff. It's great. But it's also really freaking hard. And every time I do another one, I learn a bunch of stuff. So what I was thinking is normally people that like get mixing wisdom or whatever, do it through like mix with the masters or something where they're, they're talking to like a legend, somebody that has mixed thousands and thousands of records or somebody that is like, you know, I'm Alan Parsons and I'm going to tell you how I mixed dark side of the moon. And that's incredible. But it's also is like (laughs) so far removed from where most of us are when we're starting to do this stuff that I was thinking it'd be a good thing for me to keep checking in as I'm getting better and better at mixing, getting more and more experience, tell you along the path, the stuff that I'm learning, you know, so that instead of having to have like the gods tell you how to walk the path that they walked 40 years ago to become gods, you know, it's like somebody that's like, you know, getting decent at it (laughs) tells you how they're kind of getting better at it. That's at least my goal here. And the funniest thing that I'm finding out, the more and more I do this, is that there's no right answer at all. All of it is a matter of taste, every single bit of it. It is one of the most subjective, you know, art form slash science, this weird hybrid. That's why mixing engineers can sometimes get so mystical about what they're doing. Because fundamentally what you're doing is conforming stuff to your taste. That's it. You have a ton of tools. I've talked about it on a bunch of these pods. And if you haven't listened to them, that's all good. I'll I'll talk a little bit about it in this, but I'm trying to keep it super general. What does a mixing engineer do? They take the recorded tracks that the artist and the recording engineer laid down and they mix them all up and turn them into a radio-friendly, playlist-friendly thing that can, you know, hold up against other stuff in that genre. I think that's the most important bit is holding up against stuff in the genre. It doesn't necessarily mean it like matches the genre perfectly, but it keeps that certain genre-ness. It sounds like indie pop. It sounds like hip hop. It has, it checks a few of those boxes, at least to some extent. And then from there, you can really go in a million different directions. And that's, what's really kind of fun and taxing as a, as a mixing engineer, because ultimately you will like mix something up. Usually you'll get it to a place you feel really good. Like this could be released. And then you show it back to the artist and the artist will say, okay, X, Y, Z, here's what I want changed. And all of it is a matter of taste. And so ultimately you have to go against your own taste often. But what I'm finding as a mixing engineer is advocating for my taste a bit in those conversations where it says like, yes, I will do this. Here are the reasons why I chose not to do that in the first place. Not, not, not combative saying, you know, you're the artist, like we're going to go your direction. It's your taste that matters most. But like, here's the reason why, you know, I went in that way. I am not approaching a mix as like a sterile scientist that is going to have every frequency, not, uh, you know, jump on the other frequency that everything is going to sound like a guitar and everything's going to sound like the platonic ideal of a drum set. It's like, no, I'm thinking holistically. And so 
the first thing that I like I would recommend is hire your mixing engineer based on their taste. And then on the other side, as a mixing engineer, develop your instincts. Because when you develop your instincts, then you can trust your instincts. And that's what the whole process that I'm kind of going through, you know, mixing two, three songs at least a week and developing my instincts, listening to a bunch of music, consuming it. Uh, one of my favorite things to talk to a mixing client about is not saying, what do you want this song to sound like? Like, give me a reference track. Give me music that you want your music to emulate. Less about this specific song. It's more about like, what do you think sounds good? Just out there in the world, like give me 10, 15 songs that you're just hyped on. Taking that, internalizing that in a intuitive way, because I, sometimes I do, but it's very rarely am I bouncing back and forth between a track to see, am I hitting that sound? You know, am I stealing that tone? It's not really what I want to look for. I want to like, I want to get it so deep inside of me that when I instinctively reach for this type of compressor or this type of EQ, it is giving the thing that I want it to give to the track. It is coloring it in a certain way. And so it's training that instinct and hiring a mixing engineer where you trust their instincts. If you go too deep in notes, you probably should have hired a different mixing engineer. There are like totally a few different outliers like like perfect example one of the things i was working on with garvey was we were trying to get this like um filter sweep which is kind of like how i did in the beginning this is my nod to this point uh, in the beginning in the intro you heard how it was like all kind of digital and it was kind of weird sounding and then it opens back up and then it's normal hi-fi we we're trying to go back and forth about getting this very specific thing over and over and over again to get that right that's a totally different story that's like, we're going to figure out the details of this narrow thing. If you have a mixing engineer where you get it back and you go, that's not even close. You might want to hire a different mixing engineer from there on. And I'm saying that even, you know, if you're hiring me, because you're hiring them fundamentally for what they think music sounds like, like what they internalize music to be. And that goes across genre. Like I am trying to solve problems so that by the end of my mix, I can listen to the whole thing and feel happy. If I have problems in the mix, if I'm like, oh, this kick drum sounds like crap or the guitar is too loud, even for a heartbeat of a second, the, those things will, will ruin the mix and then I'll start over. And that's not a mix yet. You know, a, a proper mix. Maybe I'll do a rough mix. That's different. But like something I'm going to deliver to the client, I have to listen to the whole thing and not have a moment that makes my, <laughs> the hair on the back of my neck stand up like in a bad way. Um, I have to at least hit that before I send it. And so if, if you're getting that from your mixing engineer, if it's, you know, it's, it's different if, if I'm saying like, hey, just check in direction, here's a rough mix, is this in the vibe, that, that's a different thing. But if, if the mix engineer is, is hitting up the client saying, this is what a, the direction I think the song should go in, and you say that's completely the wrong direction, you probably have the wrong person because you want to hire for instincts. And then I want to talk about a few other things. I've, I've talked about birth and death of songs a few times. I want, I want to dig into that a little bit more. Um, it's not just the, the first moment. It's not just your introduction. It is the, the, the point after you press play 
that that song comes into the world. And the way that it comes into the world should be really intentional. It's not that it has to sound like the best thing ever. It doesn't have to be super full. It could be really tiny. It could be really big. It could be any of these things. Be super reverby, super dry. What I'm saying is it has to have a reason to exist right from the jump. Don't just like phone it in. Like an, it's an intro. Just like make an intro. We got to start the song somehow. Like let's just start on the one chord and we're going we're gonna to start. Give it, give it a reason, like something thematic. Like listen to what the lyrics are, listen to what the, the melody is evoking, if it's instrumental, and give it, give it a moment because that's, that's its first, first breath into the world. And then conversely, on the other end, don't end lame. Like do something. It needs to, it needs to have a good death too because after that, that song's gone. You could call it back into existence again, but its existence is only in the span of somebody listening to this song. So make it count. Make the beginning and the end really, really count. And that's why I like giving it the terms of birth and death. It's like it; those have so much weight. It's not an intro and an outro. <laughs> that's just like, yeah, throw it away. You got to start. We got to end. You know. It's like no, give it, give it the respect that that song deserves. Even if it's a goofy song, like it needs to start and end in interesting, intentional ways. It doesn't need to be the best sounding. Just like intention. Like give it a reason to exist, <laughs> a reason to die. Um, the other thing that goes along with this is I like, I like to think of entrances of especially like really interesting sounds. So like say a big weird synthesizer comes in that's all warbly. The moment that that synthesizer enters, it should be like, you know, Kramer walking in, in on Seinfeld. You know, it's like you're opening the door and this crazy zany thing is entering into the arrangement. Let that speak. Let that enter. Like focus on these things popping in and out of your arrangement. These are your actors on stage. Let them have their moment when they come in or maybe consider not adding them in the first place. If you don't want something to be loud, um, that's, that's got a lot of character. If you want it to just be sort of tucked into the background, delete it and see, see what that sounds like <laughs> because it's, I'm, I'm all for like texture. I'm all for layers. I do this a bunch of my music, but if there's like a principal character, they should be featured at least for a second, you know, like they could, they could tuck back into the, the chorus, so to speak. Like, you know, like picture like a Broadway scene or something like that. Some big dancer that like is say they're like seven feet tall and wearing uh, polka dots or whatever they come on stage they shouldn't just immediately go back into the chorus line dancing with people in the way way far back that person should have their moment like whoa that is a character on stage now and then they can tuck in the back but they've introduced themselves and when they when they tuck in the back now you know they're part of this very interesting tapestry but if you don't even acknowledge their entrance or their existence, then you can tune them out. And the listener often does. And it's like, why even be there in the first place? Just put wallpaper up instead. That's one of the things that makes, you know, like sticking with acting, that makes like black box performances so impactful where if there isn't like a big extravagant set, it's just these actors against a stark black background with great lighting, that 
can sometimes suck you in more where you're like looking at their faces and their posture and the, the little details of how the actor is acting. It's the same thing with music. When there's less going on, less distracting you, you can really, really look at what are the tiny details of somebody's face, you know? You can really look at those polka dots of that seven-foot dancer. But when there's so much going on, it's really easy to get lost. And so in dense mixes, great entrances. Another thing is how parts evolve. And so, like, when there's more going on, sometimes that's a good moment to create the appearance of, like, the stage being too full in the same way, like picture a rock band when they're like really laying in like live, you can't hear the vocals very well because the band's playing so well and the sound engineer might be boosting it, but they're probably not. They're like in the back having a beer. They're not even paying attention. So you can barely hear the vocal. And so the vocalist is straining and yelling and trying to cut. There is emotion in that. And you can capture that in your mixes by allowing things to, you know, quote unquote, get louder by making some of the things get quieter. So if the guitars really kick in and the drums are really hitting hard, maybe tuck the, vo the lead vocal in a little bit in that section because that contrast is what ends up making things feel that way. And so like let parts evolve. The vocal shouldn't always, always, always be at the very top tip of the mix. There are moments where it should duck behind the arrangement to give the sense that the arrangement is bigger. Everything is in relation to each other. All of this is a trick, you know? There, It's not like the mix is not going to get that much louder in a section. Like, sure, yeah, you could just have acoustic guitar and voice, and then all the 15 million instruments all drop in. Like, yeah, it's going to be louder, but we have a pretty clear ceiling on what we can do digitally, even analog, where it's like, it's the contrast that makes things pop in the same way that, like, you know, two-dimensional art can look three-dimensional with the right contrast. We're doing the same thing with mixing. It's allowing things to evolve and then dovetail into one another. So like if there is a really cool intro guitar that's got a nice reverb, maybe let that reverb do something interesting into the first verse so that each section doesn't feel like this blocky little square, like allowing the whole arrangement to breathe and interact. And so all of this goes to a holistic view of mixing. That's why I'm talking about in the beginning, like developing your intuition, your instincts, and then also hiring your engineer based on those intuition and those instincts. Because it's some, some engineers do like get super, super in the weeds, but the best ones don't. The best ones don't talk like that. Um, not just even in my opinion, the people that are most successful, they look at this holistically. They, they, they don't even solo stuff very often. Soloing is where you're just listening to just the vocal and not the rest of the arrangement. I, I try to do the same thing where there are times obviously where you need to solo stuff and really hear what's going on. But in general, like trying to get a sense of everything that's going on because everything relates to each other. If I get the perfect guitar tone when it's soloed and it sounds like crap when it's the rest of the band, then it's not the perfect guitar tone. It, everything needs to sound with each other and everything reinforces each other. So if I get, you know little bit of too much two kilohertz um, EQ on the guitar. Now it's going to be harder for anything else in the arrangement at two kilohertz to poke through. So now all of a sudden we're kind of like racing. Every instrument is getting brighter and brighter with more and more presence because it's fighting a guitar that I boosted too much. And then I fix that guitar and then everything else sounds like crap because it was all in relation to the guitar. 
So it's like, it's being able to think of two things at once, um, which is the, the hardest thing about mixing is it's super intuitive, like, it, like intuitive in terms of intuition. You have to train this like extra sense of things that uh, I struggle with. And I think everybody struggles with that is like, sometimes it just clicks. Sometimes it doesn't. It's a puzzle, but it's a puzzle that you're, you know, carving the pieces at the same time. And a big part of that is ultimately just trusting yourself and then growing that trust in yourself by doing it over and over and over again. Um, and with that, you got to trust your ears instead of your eyes. There's so many cool, like plug-in uh, GUIs, these graphic user interfaces that can trick you. Like, you know, if you have a spinning tape machine that looks all cool or whatever, and you're like, I put that on my, my mix and everything sounds better because it just sounds better. Maybe it just looks cool. It's really easy to trick yourself into thinking that things sound better. Oh, it's just 10% better because it looks cool and it's dancing in a fun way. We're not, you know, airplane pilots. We shouldn't be trusting our instruments. We should be trusting our ears. So trick yourself sometimes. And note the, the times where this happens, because this does happen, where you'll be making changes on the wrong track or something like that. So something would happen where I'd have maybe three instances of the same compressor, 1176 compressor, um, on three different guitar tracks or vocal tracks. And I'd be highlighting the wrong one, thinking that I'm soloing this one track, I'm turning this knob, and I think that it's doing something. This happened to me a lot when I was starting out, you know six years ago or something like that, where I'd be like, oh yeah, this sounds so much better. This sounds so much better. And then you realize, oh, I wasn't even affecting the thing that I was listening to. <laughs> Remember those moments. They happen. Remember them. Be humbled by them and uh, realize that you gotta, you gotta really listen. It's harder to fool me now, but I'm not infallible. <laughs> I mess up sometimes too. So yeah. Try not to look too much at the cool user interfaces, the, the, the fancy graphics, because they might not, not actually make things sound better. Sometimes like the worst graphic interfaces are the ones that actually sound the best because they, they invested all of their time in the engineering rather than the <laughs> like graphics of the stuff. Um, same, same deal was like when you go systematically through a big mix, like one of the ones that Garvey sent me, it was like, you know, 150 tracks or something like that. God bless him. <laughs> it's all good. I actually really appreciate that because it's fun. It's like he has a lot of ideas and now it's like, okay, go. Th I get to go through these ideas and see like, what do I want to highlight? Like, what are the ideas that I resonate most with? And it becomes this collaborative process through the mix rather than just like, here's six stems, like do your thing. That's a lot less collaborative. Still super fun. Still can sound really, really good. But anyway, I ended up having to systematize that a little bit. Where when you have that many tracks, you got to be like, okay, I'm going to listen to the drums, get the drums at least to a decent spot, listen to the percussion, get the percussion to a little bit of a decent spot, clean some stuff up, move some stuff on tracks, all the stuff that the really fancy guys have assistant engineers that do all of that to begin with. So then they sit down and they just are creative. We, <laughs> the ones that do not have the luxury of having assistant engineers, just got to do it all yourself. And you have to end up trusting your past self. It's like, okay, yeah, I know that I did those drums, so I'm just going to focus on the next thing. But every once in a while, don't be afraid to tear it up because you might, you know, go through the drums, go through the bass, go through the percussion, all this kind of stuff. And then you realize, oh, this synthesizer is actually acting as a percussion instrument and it's actually driving the pulse. And I didn't notice it because there are 150 tracks that are all stereo, then I can't find it. 
eventually you pull that into the percussion stem and it changes everything. So you got to tear it up. So don't be afraid to tear it up, but also don't be afraid to trust yourself and systematize when you have to. Sometimes you have to be the assistant engineer first, clean stuff up, and then be the main mix engineer and like take it to the next level. Dividing those um, can really, really help, but sometimes it's not as neat. You can't just put on one hat and then take it off and put on the next. Sometimes you got to switch hats back and forth a few times. That's okay. And on the stereo bit, not everything has to be stereo. Mono is dope. Is dope. I love wide sounding things, but mono is sometimes the absolute best way to get things to sound wide. Here's what I'm saying. So if you have one mono track in one ear and another mono track in the other, and you affect them differently, now the waveform is different between the two ears, creating the illusion of width. The easiest way to do that is put something on it that turns it stereo. So you like micro shift or something that delays it between the two ears, detunes it between the two ears, or phase flips it if like you want to be super intense, like uh, Good Hertz Wow Control. Love that plugin for all these kind of things. But another way that you can do that is split them into mono and affect them totally differently. Put a different chorus on one than the other. Put a different phaser on one than the other. Put a different reverb on one than the other. Put a different instance of... Uh, distortion like so there's this plugin called decapitator by sound toys that everybody uses and it's got different models of distortion so you can have an api model or a um, neve model maybe try the neve in one ear and the api in the other instead of just leaving them on the same stereo track and affecting the whole thing maybe split up those waveforms a little bit with that tiny subtlety and it can go a long way the same deal with mono reverbs Having a mono reverb that is in either in one ear or just panned in one direction. So mono is just, you know, straight up old school style as though there's only one speaker. Sometimes having something like that, so say you pan it to like, you know, 45 in your left, which would be like mm, 10 (laughs) o'clock if you're kind of like, you know, doing the clock around your head, that that mono reverb can add so much depth because it is coming to you as though it's like this long tunnel in that direction. And so it can actually sound wider than a stereo reverb because you have directionality to it in the same way that just, you know, we're animals. So there's, we're like tuned to certain frequencies and certain things, certain, you know, states of reverb reverberation of like you step in one room versus an elevator. It sounds different. But if suddenly there is this tunnel in one of your vision and not in the other, that is striking because that doesn't happen in nature. And you can recreate that with the power of digital mixing. And so it's like, don't don't just slap a stereo reverb on everything. Sometimes the mono reverbs, sometimes taking stereo tracks and dumbing them down to mono can create more depth in your mix than just having stereo everything. Yeah. So that's a bunch of stuff that I've been thinking about recently and <laughs> just kind of taking notes as, I, as, I've, as I've been mixing these last couple weeks in preparation for this pod. Those are the things that came out of my head. Um, there's a million more, but those, I think, you know, they kind of sum up a lot of stuff. The other things that I love, obviously I talk about this in every pod, every interview, controlling your highs, controlling your lows. If your high end or low end is bugging you or if you need some evolution, those are great places to start because they're striking. If you want it to sound more low end, carve off some top end. If you want it to, you know, get thinner, not as big, carve off some low end because size comes from the bottom up. Size of mix, bottom up. 
um, yeah, so that, those are my like random random thoughts. In another pod um, that I'm kind of prepping for, I was thinking about doing this this time, but I thought it would come better after this. I'm going to talk about color. Uh, color is like digital versus analog. Uh, why you know analog sounded better, but now why digital I think is very much caught up, if not eclipsed it. It's because of color. And I will talk about the ways that I approach, um, you know, analog sounding digital in another pod. And I'm excited to get into that. That will affect, you know, production, arranging, recording, mixing, all that good stuff. But until then, that's my little uh, mixing workshop. <laughs> Tearing through it. If you have any questions, uh, hit me up, scubertdubert.pizza is where you can find my links. And also on my Spotify, you can see, uh, I think 160 songs or something are up there. It's not everything I've made, but it's a good chunk of it. Um, you can listen to some of my mixes. So the mixes I've done for other people, for myself. So check that out. Um, and I look forward to growing with you because I'm mixing every week and I am becoming a better mixing engineer as we go. It's not always linear, two steps forward, one step back. Sometimes a lot of, you know, side to side <laughs> steps and then three leaps forward. It's not linear, but it is a fun progress of growth as a mixing engineer. Um, and I also sometimes think that the best stuff can come out of those times when you're growing, where you're not like locked into your process. So trying to revel in that and grow aggressively and try all sorts of new stuff and as i learn new stuff i will gladly share it with you guys hopefully it will spark some creative energy of your own and with that that is music appreciation 101 mixing workshop <laughs> see you guys next week remember when Led zeppelin like everybody thought Led Zeppelin was telling subliminal messages to people by reversed um, stuff. So one time I tried to do that. Actually, I tried to sing in reverse. It, it sounded so bad. Um, I'll definitely try that again. <laughs>